Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines' new season on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Anna Lazarus. This year, we have prepared an exciting season packed with discussions on a variety of topics, taking apart the big headlines and giving you the facts. As always, Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond the Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. As the central bank continues to address historically high inflation with interest rate hikes, talk of recession is overwhelming our TV and airways. Today, we take a step back from the fanfare and talk facts about inflation, recession, and the power of speculation. Longtime economist and academic Dr. Dungan from the University of Toronto gets us up to speed on the topic, while our second guest, Dr. Sébastien Petermier from McGill's Desiree Factory, will give us a breakdown of financial tools available to us to prepare in the case of a recession. As the central bank continues to address historically high inflation with interest rate hikes, talk of recession is overwhelming our TV and airways. Today, we take a step back from the fanfare and talk facts about inflation, recession, and the power of speculation. Longtime economist and academic Dr. Dungan from the University of Toronto gets us up to speed on the topic, while our second guest, Dr. Sébastien Petermier from McGill's Desiree Factory, will give us a breakdown of financial tools available to us to prepare in the case of a recession. Good morning, Professor. Hello. Hi. Hi. <clears throat> Thank you for accepting this interview, first of all. That's all right. So to get us started, Professor, how about you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Okay, I joined the University of Toronto in 1977. So that means I've been through a bunch of recessions and inflations. <laughs> um, ground, uh, my area of study is uh, computer simulation models of the economy. So I've been working on all that time on a program that uses a computer model of the economy, which keeps evolving. And you can use that to do both forecasts so very carefully, and it depends on a lot of strong assumptions from the outside, and what you might call policy experiments too. Mm-hmm. So you can say, all right, suppose we changed government spending, what would happen to GDP? What would happen to inflation? So that's basically, I, I'm an emeritus now, but the program is carrying on and I'm still teaching macro at, in various programs at the University of Toronto, including the Master of Public Policy program. Thank you very much for your introduction. So just to start us off, what is inflation and how does it happen? Okay, so this is not a, a, as in most questions, most interesting questions in economics, it's not something where you can just say a few words. Inflation, uh, some people, uh, it's important to understand inflation is a general rise in the price level. So that if you, it's quite possible to have within the price level rises and falls of individual prices. And people sometimes, in a sense, get that mixed up with general inflation. So if the price of gasoline is rising and there are maybe some other prices that are falling, so even some people call that inflation, it will add to the overall number, but it's different from a situation, for example, the one we had in the 1970s and 80s, in which all prices are rising together. Right, that this is a more a selected inflation, if you like. And there's different ways, of course, of measuring inflation. Uh, the consumer price index is one that is most popularly looked at. But for example, within our accounts for the gross domestic product, there's another 
in a sense, price index for consumption goods, which is actually taken out of what people are buying at particular times. It's interesting to know in the recent data that has been lower than the CPI. So we have to be a little careful about some of these measures. One of the problems with the CPI is that, for example, it assumes people continue to buy the same chunks of things no matter what their prices do. But to some extent, for example, if gasoline prices go up and people drive less and take just don't go anywhere or take public transit, they're adjusting to inflation, but the CPI still assumes that you're buying the same amount of gasoline as before. So we have to be a little careful about these measures. What causes it? Oh boy. <laughs> there are there are two or three different possibilities here. One of the, let's break it down. Hey, I'm an economist. So you knew you were going to hear demand and supply at some point, right? So here we go. Okay. So there's what you might call demand driven inflation. And that basically is a situation in which basically folks and that includes not just consumers, but governments, the people who do build things like factories and houses, all want more from the economy than it can really supply, right? So supply is, is something that's quite sluggish in economies. It moves only slowly. We have only so many workers, so many factories, so many things that can make things. Demand is much more flexible. So occasionally we get situations in which demand is weaker than supply, we call that often a recession. <laughs> and there's times when demand exceeds supply. And of course, the natural result on that on the part of people who are supplying stuff and say, oh, lots of demand out there is to raise prices. And so you get demand-driven inflation. And then there's supply-driven inflation, in which typically what happens is some component of supply usually falls away. And the favorite candidate is oil prices, all right? Oil becomes more scarce and its price goes up. The demand might be the same, but the it's something becomes scarce and consequently its price goes up alone. It may filter through other things in the economy, but it goes up alone. And often the result from the economy is people have to deploy some of the money they were spending on other things to buy as much of the now high price thing as they did before. And that slows the whole economy down. So that's kind of, as you can see, that's a bit different from the demand-driven inflation, where in a sense, the economy is boiling ahead of its supply. In this case, if anything, there's a natural break on the system and a supply-driven inflation, which is that people stop buying other things because they can't afford to anymore. Where are we now, which I can see would be the next question, is interestingly enough, nature's never kind to us. It's a bit of both, right? So we have a situation in Canada and the United States where by our standard measures of demand, it's really strong. And one of the ways we can tell that is that so many people are employed. The unemployment rate in Canada and the United States is very low. Uh, if I had told most Canadian economists a few years ago that employment, the unemployment rate in Canada could get to 4.9%, they would have laughed at me. All right. That, that's just, that is the lowest number since we started collecting the numbers in this way since 1976. But at the same time, we can also tell that there is a supply component going on here. Oil prices really boomed up. There's there's other things like wheat and some food sources that for various reasons, the war in Ukraine, uh, simply droughts in some places are causing those prices to go up. So it's a bit of a supply driven inflation as well. And that makes the policymakers job even tougher than it ordinarily would be. All right, that's a great start. So 
Canadians are obviously still feeling the impacts of rising prices. In June, we saw consumer inflation rose 8.1% year over year. This Mm -hmm. is the largest yearly increase since 1983. Right. So... What has the federal government done so far to address inflation in Canada? And to what extent are policymakers responsible for the situation? First of all, it's really important to distinguish, because I find some, even sometimes my students don't distinguish this, to distinguish between government and the Bank of Canada, all right? Mm-hmm. The central bank. The, uh, some people say, well, the central bank, it's part of the government. No, it's not. Okay. Central bank uh, under our laws and rules is an arm's length institution. So I'm going to, I'm going to answer your question in a sense, directly talking about the federal government, and then maybe we can talk about the bank. Okay. So at the, at the moment, the federal government, let me back up a step. Most people would say that when it comes time to fighting inflation directly, a national government, whether it's our federal government or the, the U.S. Treasury, can do relatively little about it, right? We don't, we don't have the tools to directly address inflation, except a couple, you know, which I will mention. Okay. Now, one of the possibilities that you could do at the federal level is if you think that this is a demand-driven inflation, all right, that in other words, demand is exceeding supply, then one of the things you could do is you could slow down the economy. Now, how do you do that? You either cut your spending or you raise some taxes. That obviously hasn't happened yet. It's extremely rare historically to see a government try to address inflation by those moves. They would work, but most governments find it politically impossible to do it. People, you know, suppose the government came along now and said, oh, we've got high gas prices. Look at how families are suffering. I'm going to raise your income taxes. No, 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 it's not (laughs) going to work, right? Um, In fact, what governments are thinking of doing is actually giving money to people to help them in the inflation, which if anything, it would help on a supply-driven inflation, all right, to help get people over the hump. But it, but it would make the demand side worse, right? Because it increases the overall demand in the economy, which is pulling those prices up. Let's see. On the supply side, I, I maybe should have mentioned this before, with a supply shock side inflation shock, it, it is very difficult for people to realize that to some extent, a hit to your income is inevitable. I mean, take an economy like that is an oil importer, just to make things clearer, like say the UK or the European economies. I mean, they're partly having their oil and gas just shut off on them, but but the point is they're more expensive. There's no quick way around that. The economy is going to have to eat that one way or another. People are going to be less well off than they would have been if oil prices had been lower. In Canada, it's more of an income distribution issue. I mean, we, we produce more oil and export it than we use domestically, but it still means that the oil users are going to be transferring income to the oil producers. And we have all kinds of issues about provincial royalties and things like that in corporate taxes that we can use to balance that out eventually, but it takes time. It takes a long time. So if a government, in a sense, gives money to people to help them over a supply side shock, if it's a short-term one, that may be a sensible policy. If it's a long-term one, not so much because we got to pay for it eventually. And, and if we're doing it by deficit financing, then in a sense, governments are paying for it instead of us. There's going to be a reckoning. 
all, all of that is kind of a long answer to what can the federal government do? Historically, not very much. <laughs> and they've got a kind of a They've got a dilemma on their hands about, yeah, you want to help, but if you help, in some senses, you're making it worse, right? You're actually increasing the demand. Back in the 1970s, governments more in the United States than in Canada experimented with what are called wage and price controls. So you literally said, no, no prices can rise more than X percent per year. It's against the law to do any more than that. We learned at that time that those don't work very well. Because what happens is all you do is suppress the price movements. As soon as you take the controls away, bang, up go the prices again. And so it's, it's tricky. The one thing Canada did right in the early 1980s, this was under Mr. Trudeau Sr., okay, uh, Justin's father, uh, was they had an indicative policy that was called at the time six and five, right? We had inflation running about eight, nine, 10%. So they put in something that said, we're going to have controls for two years. And the operative word is 6% this year, 5% next year. And those numbers stuck in people's minds as, hey, the inflation is going to be going away. Uh, and we've done some, econ- you know, some statistical work that indicates they actually may have helped to bring the inflation down a little bit. So what I would like to hear the federal government saying at this point is that, is reinforcing the message we're getting from the Bank of Canada, which I have yet to get to, okay, uh, which is that inflation is coming down. Like, just get the message out there, all right? Uh, and because in a way, this is all boiling down to expectations. What do people expect for the future? Because what happened in the 1970s and early 80s was high inflation got embedded in people's minds. It was demand-driven and supply-driven inflation. And the trouble is that once people expect it, then they go out and start raising prices in advance. They start asking for wage increases in advance. What we've got to make sure doesn't happen this time is that that doesn't happen again. Okay? I'll let you. (laughs) Okay. I think that's that's really interesting, especially since we're talking about expectations. Because those expectations are in place, to what extent was this present situation we're in right now unavoidable or unpredictable? Well, to some extent, it was unavoidable because of the supply side part. Not to get overly complicated, but there's some argument that maybe there was a bit of a demand side effect too. This may be a little more true in the United States than in Canada, but the giving back of money to people for COVID, which in and of itself was a good thing, may have, it was difficult to know what the overall state of the economy was. It may have overinflated it. It may have pushed the demand push on the, on the economy a little bit. I, my own personal feeling is there wasn't a lot of that in Canada. In any event, the, the chief problem came from the supply side, oil prices, supplies chain disruptions, food prices, all sort of coming in at the same time with the disruptions that were occurred because of COVID. So to some extent, this was inevitable. It would have been all, we haven't been through a situation. We knew the Ukraine war was coming. So to have foreseen it would have been, I, I mean, you, you would have needed an amazing crystal ball to have <laughs> seen it. So I don't blame governments or central banks for that matter for not having reacted more quickly. Central banks maybe could have started to raise interest rates a bit earlier than they did. But again, a lot of what's caused this inflation happened suddenly, and it happened in a way that would have been difficult to forecast. So really, the question is, what do you do now, uh, as opposed to arguing about what you could have done before? Mm -hmm. So 
We have seen successive historic interest rate hikes by the Canadian Central Bank in attempts to control inflation and runaway inflation. Right. Uh, before we jump into the Central Bank, what is runaway inflation? Well, runaway inflation, I guess, would, would speak to the what I mentioned about expectations. That in other words, they become, it, the inflation becomes self-justifying. So everybody expects that inflation is going to be 8% next year. Everybody asks for a wage increase of 8%, uh, maybe even 10 to make sure they get ahead of everybody else. That's insupportable. If, if governments in a central bank allow it to happen, like they're scared of, of raising interest rates or something, it, can, it then just works into higher and higher expectations. Oh, last year inflation was 8. I'm going to bargain for 9 or 10 this year. Oh, then it turns out to be 10. Well, then I'll bargain for 12. And then it could go. Now, it, it can't keep happening that way unless the central banks basically provide the money, if you like, to make it happen. And back in 1980, the head of the U.S. central bank, he was a new, uh, newly appointed head, Paul Volcker, said, I'm not going to let it happen anymore. <laughs> Interest rates went higher than you could you know, believe in these days, like 15, 20%. And the net result was that people became unemployed, huge numbers, firms found they couldn't sell their stuff. So what happens in a situation like that? People lower their wage demands and they lower their prices to try and sell the stuff. So that's, in a sense, is a little bit of what central banks are looking at today. But what they're trying to do with the initial and to some extent, the shock interest rate increases like the 100 basis point one that the central bank just did is they're trying to get people's attention. They're trying to say, guys, we're not going to permit this like it happened before. So stop with the expectations. All right. They, and then we won't have runaway inflation. And then we don't have to cause as much harm to the economy to get whatever inflation is left away and out of the system. Okay. Would you say the central bank's tools for addressing inflation and so playing with interest rates is more efficient than what governments can do? Uh, largely, yes. And also politically more possible, right? Again, really, yeah. what's happening here? There's nothing much you can do on the supply side, right? If oil prices are high, you do have economies that experiment with, well, we're going to subsidize oil or something like that. There was an attempt to do that in Canada in the early 80s, which is still the National Energy Program, which goes way back in history, but it's still the reason why the Liberals can't elect anybody in Alberta <laughs> uh, beyond maybe one or two seats, because the residual political harm from that was enormous. So, so you can't do much on the supply side. All you can do is affect okay. the demand side. And mm -hmm. central banks can do it by raising interest rates, which causes people to, it's not so much, some people say, you know, if they've had a one economics course, oh, it lowers investment. Mm, not so much. It's housing. And it's things like consumer durables, right? Because often we finance those with short-term interest rates. So you'll find that the brick won't let you play three years from now. They have to let you pay two years or one year from now if interest rates are higher. And people don't buy as many Chesterfields and refrigerators and cars and things like that. That slows yeah. that part down. And it can also, well, it, it can do a number of other things, but basically that's the way interest rates slow things down. Governments can slow things down too, but they have to do it like we described with 
pay, uh, you know, government spending cuts or tax increases. Mm, not going to happen. So really, our our first line of defense is on the interest rate side. I mean, I'm not saying that it wouldn't be more efficient if they could coordinate with each other and do all together. Maybe they could get it over with faster. But it's just you know, we have to deal with the real world. One of the reasons we have central banks at arm's length from governments is that they can make hard decisions without, in a sense, worrying about what the next election or by-election is going to do. And that was the whole reason for making central banks independent. Mm -hmm. All right. So these interest rates are going up. We have no choice. With <laughs> How are Canadians going to be affected by the central bank's increases? Do we think, will certain Canadians be more affected? Who is this burden going to fall onto? Yes, well, that's the unfortunate part of doing it through interest rates is that the burden is to some extent badly distributed. It isn't we all take a little bit of a hit, which say we would if they decided to raise income taxes. So somebody who was thinking of buying a home recently or renegotiating their mortgage is going to be hit much harder than somebody who, for example, just renegotiated their mortgage. Oh, five years, good for you. Okay. And, um, yeah. uh, or is it a stage of life where they own their own home outright? So a pensioner, for example, or they, they're not just not interested in buying a residence, right? They're still very much younger. If you were about to buy a car, your old one is, you know, giving out on you, or you're getting to the stage where you'd like to buy your first car. Ouch, you know, financing that is going to be more expensive. If you've got a car you just bought a couple of years ago and it's going to last you for 10 years, eh, who cares? You know, it's so it's one of the other interesting things, of course, is that happens on this is some of them are secondary. So that, for example, somebody who's got a mortgage and has to renegotiate it and, oh, they're going to pay a higher interest rate. They have fewer funds to pay to, to pay uh, to spend on other things. Well, that slows the economy down, maybe even in the restaurant sector or the theater sector, because people aren't coming out to do that. So it, there are shockwaves that come out from that. But there's, there's a select group, in a sense, who are going to be most hit by the interest rates. And um, would that it, in a sense, could be more evenly spread. And sometimes the shockwaves do spread it around. But, but it is unequal, no question. Okay. We also see a lot of this, as I said, shockwaves go through the economy. So we're going to see vulnerable Canadians also taking a hit from these. Uh, we could see it through rising prices, maybe towards higher rents. Mm -hmm. so yes. Yeah. No, certainly. I mean, now here we have to distinguish between the pain of the inflation and the pain of, of in a sense, countering the inflation. Uh, so... Um, in some ways, the pain of the inflate for, for those at lower income scales, the lower part of the economic spectrum, it's the pain of the inflation as opposed to the pain of the cure that is, in a sense, the worst problem, which is one reason why you want to pursue the cure. It's, it's to take that pain away from others. Now, I mean, we have certain things that help out on that. So, for example, GST rebates and whatever that people typically get at the low end and some of our welfare payments are actually indexed to inflation. So that means they will be going now they they often have a cap on them so they may not get the full 8% uh, and it's always with about a year's lag which can be a real problem for somebody who's living paycheck to paycheck or welfare check to welfare check but but there will be a certain amount that kind of 
makes that up eventually. We learned to put those things in place, by the way, in the great inflation of the 70s and 80s, when pensioners and people who were on a fixed income, which was truly fixed in those days, were absolutely getting cut to pieces by the succeeding high rates of inflation. So that's something to keep in mind that it, it's an offset, but the trouble is it's, it's, not a, it's one that takes a while to have its effect. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you think governments, and we talked about the importance of politics and, you know, keeping electorate happy, do you think governments may be incentivized to try and help out Canadians who are having a tougher time through, you, you mentioned rebates, but also uh, one-time payments. Mm-hmm. We did see the Quebec government do so earlier this year with a yeah. one-time $500 transfer. That's right. No, and, and there's room for that. What we have to keep in mind is that, in a sense, in doing it, the, the, the government that does it, whether it's provincial or federal, is to some extent making the Bank of Canada's job harder. In other words, it may mean that they have to raise interest rates even more. But, but you could justify it on the basis of, in a sense, equity, right? That, that you're helping out the people who are most affected by inflation, And then you're putting pain on people who, like somebody who can buy a house after all or get a mortgage, is actually already fairly well off, right? So the fact that they have to pay for a more for their mortgage is, in a sense, is kind of equalizing things, all right? Basically, you're taking from them to help out the people who are most affected by inflation. Of course, there's people in the middle who are going to be, in a sense, as much hurt by the interest rate increases as you help them out with the subsidies. But but you could, I mean, it's going to be very hit and miss, but you could do a certain amount of being careful with equity by doing those kinds of very targeted programs. But the key thing is that they should be targeted. Like, in other words, I'd be very upset with a government that said, oh, we have high inflation, let's cut everybody's income tax or something like that. It, it really needs to be targeted. What you don't need to be doing here is adding to the demand push, pull from inflation, which a general tax cut would do. Mm-hmm. All right. So inflation is currently a global issue. It's not just the case for Canada. Mm-hmm. How is the Canadian Central Bank strategy to address this going to be impacted by global inflation rates? Well, in a sense, they have to keep their eyes on everybody else. They, if, if we had the inflation that we do in Canada and the rest of the world didn't, they'd still be doing what they're doing. <laughs> so in a sense, it's not, it's not really that, um, how to put it, that it's changing their policy response all that much. And we would have every reason not to raise interest rates if we didn't have the inflation that the rest of the world was having. It's one of those things that can be pretty much country by country. The Japanese, for example, are not raising their interest rates because they already have deflation. If anything, their central bank would be happy to get people's expectations up a little bit. So to the extent, of course, that let's say the world situation causes oil prices to drop more than might otherwise be the case because other central banks are fighting inflation, then that's good for the central bank. You know, that means we don't have to raise as much. We don't have to suppress demand as much. So, but, but it doesn't really, how to put it, it's only going to change their, their response at the margin as far as it goes. I mean, Canada in some ways is one of the most obvious places to have interest rates raised because our economy was clearly firing on all cylinders. We had a demand pull for inflation anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
the oil prices were going to feed back into our some series of sections of demand in our economy, like for investment goods, because we are an oil producer. So uh, basically, we should have gone ahead, even if the Europeans, well, as you can see, the Europeans are arguing amongst each other about whether they need an interest rate increase or not. But that's because their economy is not at full employment. They don't have as much demand pressure. They're dealing with it largely a supply shock. And okay. uh, so it's less clear in their case that they should have had an interest rate increase, but it doesn't stop us from having interest rate increases. All right. So all of this talk about interest rate increases, mortgages going up, it's causing fear in people. We hear a lot of talk about in, in the news about potential housing crisis, people losing their homes mm -hmm. uh, and a coming recession. So what is a recession, first of all? And have we seen any of the warning signs of a recession taking place in Canada? Okay, so recession is a, it's a kind of a loose term. Uh, many people say it, it's as long as you have two consecutive quarters in which your gross domestic product adjusted for inflation, so it's what's your real output, it has fallen relative to the previous quarter. By some counts, the Americans have already had one because their quarter one was negative, and there's a lot of indication that their quarter two will be negative. But it's important to understand negative can be minus 0.1% or it can be minus 3%. And there's a huge difference between those. So although it's perfectly possible that Canada will have a recession in the next few quarters induced by the, the supply side inflation, which is causing people to be able to spend less on other things and the rise in interest rates, it's it is highly unlikely that it will be anything like the recession that we saw in 2009 and the result of the financial meltdown in the United States that slopped over to us or the COVID recession or indeed the great 1990 recession or the great 1980s recession where we literally had the unemployment rate rising several percentage points you know up to the 10 and 12 range so we have to be really careful when people throw around the word recession they can mean a minor downturn or they can mean a major one and more than likely if we have a recession in canada it will be a minor one it will be on the minor side yes some people will lose their jobs um, but not a lot is the idea. It's even possible that we'll get what is called often a soft landing. That is to say, the economy will grow less fast than it has in the last little while, but it'll still grow a little bit, enough to absorb most of the new workers who are coming into the job market. And at the same time, right, the feeling is that we're not in a real boom. So people mm -hmm. relent on their, it, the firms relent on raising prices. Uh, wage earners don't really ask for huge wage increases, and this will partly depend on their expectations. And we can get through this and get the inflation rate down in a year or two to our more normal targeted 2% without actually having gone through a recession. All right. So, but the, but the key thing to remember is there's a recession and then there's a capital R recession. Some people call it a depression or the great recession. And almost certainly, I, I never want to be absolute on these things, but almost certainly we're not looking at a big one. We're at most looking at a little one. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's reassuring. I think we're yes. hearing so much in the news of, you know, huge recessions coming our way. And I think, that also plays on expectations of Canadians, you know, to, to 
put down your spending and look at your budget again. So that's also yes. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, expectations here are, a, uh, it, it's partly positive, partly negative. You want Canadians to reduce their expectations mm -hmm. because then they won't ask for big wage increases. They'll be cautious. They'll be conservative to the extent mm -hmm. that, for example, they postpone some of their spending. That will mean that a an automaker or somebody who's even posting restaurant meals will be a little more careful about raising their prices. And that's all of the sort of thing that will gradually get the inflation rate down. On the other hand, you don't want people to get scared silly, in which case they will massively reduce their, their demands. And then, phew, then we do have a serious recession. Mm-hmm. So you talked about historically low unemployment rates. We've had historically high vacancy rates to kind of mm -hmm. accompany that. And those vacancy rates have been hurting our economy to a certain sense. We've had uh, provincial and federal governments trying to incentivize retraining and reskilling yeah. workers. How will that come into play with a potential decrease in available employment? Will well, hurt companies? A little bit in the sense that well, it actually, in some ways, it actually works in both directions. If, if you have an economy that's super hot and people can find a job almost anywhere, then to some extent, uh, one of the things we worry about is that it actually causes fewer people to complete their educations so that they become less productive for the future by taking a job now. So a little bit of, a little bit of slack in the labor market may actually turn out to be something that causes more people to say, no, I'll go to community college. I'm going to upgrade my skills. And the government can help on that one. And then, in a sense, once all of this current temporary stuff is over, you have a more productive and more learned workforce than you otherwise would have. So it, it kind of works both ways on that. And I don't think at the margin it's going to matter a great deal one way or the other here. But to the extent that we have a little higher unemployment rate, a little less vacancies, it might not actually be a bad thing in terms of longer term retraining and skills development. So we'll see. We'll just have to see how that one goes. All right. And I have one final question for you. And this one's obviously based on your experience and the recessions you mentioned you have gone through. How long do you expect Canada may experience this soft landing or recession, depending on how things go? Okay, very roughly year and a half to two years. By the time we get well into 2024, we have every expectation in our current forecasts <laughs> that, that the economy will be still near its full employment. The unemployment rate may be a bit higher than it is today. The inflation rate will be getting back close to 2% which in a sense is the bank's target. It's not zero, it's two, okay? And, and we should be entering a period of more sustained, not boom, but more sustained and sustainable. I don't mean in an environmental sense, but sustainable in the sense that, that we, we don't have to make some major policy changes about it into the future. I mean, then we'll be, <laughs> then of course the next shock will hit the system, which we can't see coming. But give it a year and a half to two years back into 2024, and, and most of this storm should be over. Uh, again, unless Mr. Putin or somebody else throws some other curve in our direction. All right. Well, fingers crossed for things to go. Indeed. That's right. Yes. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Duncan. It was a pleasure to speak to you. 
Okay, well, it was very good questions. I do much appreciate them. Very nicely laid out. And uh, yeah, so everybody, don't panic. All right, it, it's a bit <laughs> of a rough patch, but but we'll get through it. And we have every reason to believe we'll get through it okay. And then things actually don't look so bad for Canada going on afterwards. Okay. Okay, great. Well, uh, thank you very care. much. Once again, that was Dr. Duncan. We will continue our discussion with Dr. Sébastien Bétermier. Dr. Sébastien Bétermier is an Associate Professor of Finance at the Désolé Factor of Management at McGill University and the incoming Executive Director Designate of the International Centre for Pension Management. So to start us off, do you want to give us a bit of a background? You know, how did you start off your career? How did you end up at McGill? What have you been working on? Sure. So I'm an Associate Professor of Finance at McGill. Uh, my research focuses on investments pension funds, retirement systems. I came in with very much of an economics background. I was an economics mm -hmm. undergraduate. I was fascinated by understanding how analytical tools can help us to make sense out of complex social systems, uh, such as the stock market or other economic markets. Mm -hmm. I got into the finance PhD and became increasingly interested in the questions around retirement, which is very much an economic question. We are living about a third of our life being retired that we need to plan for early on. And so this has raised all kinds of questions about optimal saving over the life cycle, good budgeting, understanding of capital markets as a whole, understanding of pension systems. And so this is where I am today. Awesome. Thank you. So. Kind of to start us off, what financial tips or tools would you suggest for individuals who are afraid of a coming recession and who are trying to prepare? So my first advice is do not panic. <laughs> do not panic. It, it's, it sounds simple, but it is incredibly hard to do. Because as soon as we start facing a recession and stock markets drop, we immediately start thinking about everything that could go wrong. And how all our savings for decades could evaporate right away. And this is partly because the crash in the stock market itself is driven by investors fearing for the worst and rushing to sell off stocks. And so what this means, if you think strategically about investment decision making, is that oftentimes the best opportunities to invest are precisely during recessions when stock markets crash. Many of the most successful investors, think of Warren Buffett and others, are known to take bold bets during these moments, during recessions. So my advice is not to panic, to be patient, and perhaps be even ready to purchase assets if you're able to take on the risks. So that's one advice. The second advice I would give is to make sure you have a buffer to withstand short-term shocks. Think of it as a rainy day fund. A recession becomes very difficult to manage if you have a lot of fixed costs and you lack liquidity. For example, suppose that you lose your job, you have a mortgage to pay, and you have a number of additional costs that you've committed to, but you're running out of cash. And so if 
your investments go down, interest rates go up, your credit card debt goes up, your mortgage goes up, and suddenly you don't have cash on the side to withstand and make adjustments, uh, then you might be forced to sell off your house and other assets at a loss. And so here, it is incredibly important that you have that ability to manage liquidity during these times. Okay, so given this advice, feels like it's supported by having an important income on your side or even a, a house you can kind of lean on. How would this advice apply to students, individuals, let's say below 35, who have less, who have had less time to accumulate wealth? Well, size of your rainy day fund very much depends on your ability to handle the crisis. So if you are a student and you don't necessarily need to pay rent, and you don't necessarily have kids, and you don't necessarily have a mortgage to pay, you are not facing as much downside risk as someone who has a young family, who are the, the parents of a young family who have a lot on the line if things go wrong. And so you may not need as much of a buffer, right? If you have that innate capacity to, to adjust, so I would say very much how much your rainy day fund, the size of that very much depends on your ability to adjust and being in a student, being young, being able to take on different jobs as needed might put you in a better ability to adjust position than otherwise. All right. So given the current economic climate, how would that impact your investing decisions and recommendations? So clearly right now, we're facing a lot of volatility in the stock market. I expect volatility to remain high as long as we are stuck in the same geopolitical situation. The war, the high inflation, the tight oil markets is causing a lot of volatility. The food shortages are causing a lot of volatility into the system. We're seeing inflation. We're seeing interest rates going up. So the in I would say the investment opportunities are clearly changing. Now, again, given the high volatility, my recommendation is make sure you can manage liquidity if things take a turn for the worse. That's absolutely key. And I would also say to keep in mind that because of this higher volatility, stock prices are lower than they typically are. And that's important because if you buy assets at depressed prices now, you may earn higher returns over the long run. And so if you can afford to bear this volatility, it may actually be a good time to invest. Would you recommend individual prioritize more stable investments? Not necessarily. On the one hand, as you said, they're more stable. Therefore, they are more immune to the current shocks that we're facing, uh, less immune uh, to the current shocks that we're facing. There's a lower probability that these stocks the firms will go bankrupt. However, because they are more stable, because there's a lot of preference by investors to hold more stable stocks at the moment, they are more expensive, right? So my suggestion would be that any one of us asks the following question, am I more or less affected to the current economic risks than everyone else around me? If the answer is I'm much more affected, and I might have a hard time surviving a recession over the next several months, then yes, you should prioritize more stable investments because even though they're cheaper, you may not be able to afford at the moment um, the ability to take on risk. 
However, if your answer is, you know what, a recession is not fun, but I am in a decent position to withstand the short term, then actually I would say, think about the risk premium or the higher expected returns that we can expect on the other stocks that are cheaper because they are more volatile. If I can bear that risk, it may be a good time to take on that risk at the moment. What would you suggest to individuals who have a lower risk tolerance, but are also looking to invest probably more beginner investors? I would say, keep in mind that you are investing for the long run. This is critically important. Some of the funds that you will invest in, I'm sure will take a hit. In particular, those that have a high debt burden, some of them will go bankrupt. But if your portfolio is sufficiently diversified, I mean, think of owning a large mutual fund or exchange-traded fund that might have 100 to 200 stocks in the portfolio. Most of them will survive. The economy as a whole will survive. And so if you don't need to have access to your savings in the next one to three years, because again, you can make adjustments to your household situation in the next one to three years, most of the funds you invest in right now will still be there and thriving once things will get better. So again, my suggestion is make sure you have sufficient liquidity to manage the crisis, but focus not so much on the one to three years, but focus on your target horizon, which could be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. This will help to relieve some of the anxiety that you're currently facing when you look at the very short-term fluctuations. So given the central bank's continued interest rates hike, which Canadians do you think should be prepared to be more impacted by those hikes? Those Canadians who are taking on debt at the moment. So if you have a mortgage, you're likely going to be more affected. Now, not all homeowners will be affected. If you, take on, if you have taken a fixed rate mortgage, well, the interest rate is fixed. So sure, interest rates are going up right now, but yours is locked in. So you're fine. If you're a homeowner and you have a variable rate mortgage, you are going to pay more because rates go up, but your monthly payment itself is protected. So typically what happens when you have a variable rate mortgage, the payment amount is fixed. It's just that if interest rates go up, well, then more of it will be used to repay. More of your payment will be used to repay the interest rates and less will be used to pay the principal. So essentially your, your payments period will be extended maybe from 10 years to 12, from 10 years to 13. You'll pay more of interest as a result, but you were not necessarily going to see a big increase in your level of monthly payments. So that shouldn't create anxiety for you in the short run that you can no longer pay your bills. If, however, you have an adjustable rate mortgage, then you are in a more vulnerable situation because any increase in interest rates will naturally lead to an increase in your mortgage payments. And so my advice for those of you in that situation or those of you with a lot of credit card debt and you have a, a variable rate payment is to do some scenario analysis. What happens if interest rates go up by another 0.5%, by another 1%, by another 2%? Once you know the answer, you won't like the answer, but at least you can plan ahead. And that's important because if you can plan ahead, then you can avoid making further commitments. You can figure out where you can cut down expenses somewhere else, but at least you know, right? So you don't have to live with that uncertainty about what's going to happen to you in the next six months to a year. 
All right. And finally, to finish us off, what are your go-to financial resources in terms of financial education that our listeners can consult? They're kind of looking for tools to make financial decisions. I personally like podcasts. I tend to listen to them when I do something else. I like them a lot because they come back on a regular basis. And so it gives you a continuous education in a very enjoyable way. So I like to listen to capital allocators. I like to listen to the rational reminders. There's other types of podcasts as well. It's been a good source of learning in my view. Perfect. Thank you very much. It's been a beautiful discussion. Once again, that was Dr. Sébastien Betermi. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining our episode Breaking Down Inflation and Recession. Today's show is produced by Anna Lazarus. If you like the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review wherever you listen to the show. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airways.